Hi, this is Hope. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to Me Radio. This episode of Nomi Athlete Radio is brought to you by Kalo, makers of the silicone wedding ring. The Kalo silicone ring is the functional wedding ring for an active lifestyle. Kalo's rings are durable, comfortable, and always safe for your finger. No matter where your active lifestyle takes you, Kalo makes it possible for you to never go without your wedding ring again. Welcome back to another episode of Nomi Athlete Radio. I'm Matt Frazier, joined by Doug Hay, and we've got an interview today. That's right. This is going to be a fun one because it's someone who both of us have read and like his strategy yes and you're actually using it right now to in your marathon training right? yeah, i sort of am i mean not i wouldn't say I'm, I'm doing it in any sort of uh formal way but just the general principle the the guest of course is dr phil maffetone who people have probably heard of a lot i get a lot of questions about uh him jason and i in in our site run your bq get a lot of people asking questions uh people just saying what do you think of the maffetone method and uh jason's not a huge fan i found it to be really useful for me uh in in just in kind of an informal way, like I said, like just when I begin a training cycle, uh, rather than jumping right into an 18 week training program, first proceeding that with a good few months of period where I'm just doing really slow running. Yeah. And that, of course, is what Maffetone teaches. That's what his method is about. And really, he doesn't want you to do much ever beyond the slow runs. I think, I think mostly his stuff is based on that you only do these slow runs, uh, which is kind of an interesting philosophy. It, I don't know. It, it's worked well for me. Rich Roll, it's, it's kind of what he mentions in his book, yep. Finding Ultra. He talked about that a lot. I don't think he actually specifically says Maffetone method in there, but uh, that's that's basically what he's doing. And he did mention to me in our recent interview, which was on the podcast a couple months ago, mm-hmm. that, uh, that yes, it was, in fact, the Maffetone method that he was doing. So it's an interesting thing. It's intriguing. The point, of course, is that you stay under roughly 70% of your heart rate or your max heart rate, and that's kind of your uh, barometer for are you going too fast? I think he has different formulas than that, though. He has all different, uh, you know, you calculate your maffetone zones, and you, and you find this point where you're supposed to stay under, and he has this different method of, of testing. So I think you run a mile, or maybe it's maybe it's that you run a certain time, and you see how far you can get in that time at a given heart rate. So you keep your heart rate constant. You never go above a certain amount, and then you basically see, you watch your speed improve or, or the distance that you cover improve for this given heart rate, and that's how he measures progress. So anyway, it's an intriguing method, uh, certainly controversial. There are people who disagree with it, but uh, I think it's one that is appealing for, I don't know, the type of runner I am. I mean, I think I think really he says that this kind of thing should work for elites as well as amateurs. Right. The appeal for me, his first book is called The Maffetone Method. Or I don't know if it's his first book, but the, the book I've read before this, uh, he has a new one out called The Endurance Handbook, which is the reason he's doing this round of interviews. But in the Maffetone method, the subtitle is you know has all these things. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's like the low stress, um, low impact formula for health, and it's kind of about this this lifestyle, this way of health that isn't go out and like kill your body and get into this sugar burning zone and then have to recover, but more this kind of like sustainable, super low intensity that you just do all the time and you kind of live your life at this low intensity. And I, I think that's an appealing way to exercise and live. Definitely, I think right now. It seems like the high intensity workouts are really popular, both with runners, but also with things like CrossFit and and those types of workouts. So this is a definitely a different approach and one that I haven't followed specifically myself, but I do find very interesting and and I'm excited to hear what he has what he has to say in this interview. Yeah, I am too. So it should be good. Uh, I'm going to ask him to to get to 
kind of get to some of the specifics so that so that we can you know that you can actually apply what what he's doing because i think uh, the big problem for me with this stuff is i always worry about heart rate monitors and like what if my heart rate monitor is a little bit off mm-hmm. or what if the formula the 220 minus age or the better formulas than that what if i'm just not a good fit for those formulas and like how do i know if if i am or you know you don't want to put in three months of training and realize that you were doing the wrong thing and that you were just five beats in the wrong direction and, and totally not doing the method right so i want to ask him those type of things and make sure that you know, just figure out like is is heart rate really a way that we can gauge intensity and uh and how, how accurate is a formula like that uh or like the one that he's using so we'll get to some of those practical issues and hopefully have something that uh that someone can can apply immediately great let's get to it all right let's do it Okay, it's Matt. I'm with Dr. Phil Maffetone, who has a new book out called The Endurance Handbook. Phil, thank you for joining us here. Thank you, Matt. Great to be here. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited to talk to you because uh, your, your approach, particularly to running, it seems to come up a lot, um, probably, probably in all circles, but in ours, it just seems to be a lot of times I'm answering the question, what do you think of the Maffetone method? And uh, that's, that's the extent of what I had known about your approach was what was in that book because I read that one, I think it was a summer or two ago. And uh, I've I've looked through a good amount of the new one, so I'm eager to talk to you and kind of get uh, hopefully you know get your get your approach in a nutshell that we can share with people here. Um, talk about why it's different. I, what what's attractive to me about it is that it is you know the non traditional alternative sort of approach. And I don't know if if you like a term like that or if that's more you know if if you'd rather be a mainstream approach. But uh, I I like things like this that are radically different from what else is out there because I think there's a lot of potential gains from trying things that are way different from the norm and uh and then keeping what works they yeah you're you're absolutely right and the approach i have is not a fixed uh method it's not a there's no dogma it's it's a very flexible open system so i'm fine having people use and i've used with the athletes i trained and i've used myself personally virtually everything out there uh because it it all potentially has benefits but one of the things that i'm very um clear about i I emphasize strongly is the need for each one of us to not guess you know is this is this particular method helping me um uh, I was I was training this other way before, and I seemed to be getting better, but I'm not sure. And I had a race, and I was, you know, I I had a good race. Well, it, a good race is is nice, but it doesn't really mean anything objectively because an overtrained athlete will often perform their best in a competition right before they crash. So it, it's, a, it's a nice thing to have a good race, but it can also be a red flag. So I like to measure submax efforts. And whatever you do, if you can run faster and faster as the weeks and months go by at the same submax heart rate, then you're improving. Then your diet is balanced and your training is not too stressful and your lifestyle is, is okay. But if at some point you start getting slower, at that submax hard rate, then something is wrong, and your job is to figure out what it is. Okay, so uh, we can start to get into the to the uh, nuts and bolts here of, mm. of your your approach. When you say submax, are you referring to? I mean, I've seen it in your book some. Um, 
are you referring to your what would you consider the the heart rate that zone that we should be all training or that we should be all under this certain heart rate or are you talking about a true max heart rate uh, I'm talking about a sub max heart rate now i I developed um, a process where i've I've determined uh, I, I, I found a formula and we can talk about that but I, I discovered a, a way to evaluate clinically uh, an individual and come up with a heart rate at which training at or below they can develop their aerobic system really well and it's a submax heart rate okay. um, submax that that term is is a little misleading because it means anything under maximum right. and some people think of maximum as all out maximum it's sure. you know it's part of the 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 scientific uh, the lack of scientific consensus. Uh, there's so many terms thrown around. Nobody really knows what they mean because they're not well defined. But, but in your everyday running, um, you should be getting better uh, if you measure it objectively, and that would be using the heart rate. It's the easiest way to objectively test things. Okay, great. So I want to get into those specific details. Um, but for those who don't know what your approach is about. Let's let's just talk about that. I mean, I think a lot of people when they hear Mafto method, they think that means run slow, and that's that's what it is. Um, I guess I'll I'll take a shot at, at explaining to me what it just the running side of it, not even talking about the nutrition and other sides yet. But uh, to me, it seems that the Mafto method is spending a long period of time before you you know many many months before you dare try any sort of higher intensity stuff. Um, at this in training in this aerobic zone and not letting your heart rate exceed a certain threshold. I think 180 minus your age is the one that that you use. Uh, I've you know other authors will say something like like 70% of your max heart rate or something like that. Um, and just staying under there and just developing that aerobic system, and you know basically not not doing any workouts that deliberately um, target the anaerobic system or target muscle building. It's all about developing that aerobic base. So that's that's my uh, my you know, not completely understanding explanation of yours, but what, what can you, can you tell me where I'm not quite ready? Right sure. That? And that's a, that's a pretty good explanation. Um, you know, I don't, I don't get into the different zones. Uh, when I was, um, developing all these, uh, approaches back in the seventies and into the eighties, there, there were no zones. Um, I, I looked at the physiology like everyone else got confused there's some very, very important research there, and I've learned a lot from it, and I'm, I'm in the medical library literally every day reading new studies. Um, but I said, look, there's aerobic and there's anaerobic, and there's sort of a fine line between the two, and I found that a certain heart rate was associated with aerobic levels, and I tried to say, okay, what's the highest heart rate we can go and still be aerobic and not be anaerobic? And I call that the MAF heart rate, maximum aerobic function heart rate. And what I also found was that uh, if the aerobic and the anaerobic system were not balanced, then you could get in trouble. You can get injuries. You can get. Uh, you can become overtrained. Uh, you can uh, not have good performance. You can build too much body fat in the body, uh, which today is obvious that that's uh, a big, big problem in many people, uh, including runners. And um, so what I, what I realized uh, through trial and error, just clinical evaluation of many, many runners for many, many years, is that people 
responded best when they're trying to build the aerobic system by doing it with the least amount of stress. And that stress could be a physical stress, a chemical stress, which would come from the diet, or a mental stress, mental emotional stress, which is what what people think of when they hear the word stress. But we can have physical stress. Um, not wearing the right shoes could be a physical stress. Uh, sitting a lot all day is a, a physical stress. And all of these things are stresses, and they affect the body in a certain way, and they affect, in particular, the aerobic system, which is a, our fat-burning system. So I decided, okay, it's you know we need to test this out, and I'm going to pick out a couple of hundred runners and have them do three to six months of aerobic training only without doing anything hard, without their heart rate going over that MAF heart rate and see what happens. And um, to make a long story short, they uh, improved their submax pace every, uh, you know, on a regular basis. They um, were able to eliminate their injuries. In most cases, they lost weight. And 76% of them ran a personal best in a 5K race after that aerobic huh. base. And so um, it, it has become a, a, a real important component. Um, there are some people who have a good aerobic base already. And so for those people, we would get them doing harder training uh, as, as appropriate. But I will say this, that um, many athletes I've worked with, uh, you know, back at the Packers, all the way up through the elite ranks, um, many have performed their best year after year without injury by only training aerobically and then relying on the race to give them that little bit of anaerobic stimulation, which can be very helpful. And, and so you, I mean, it's it just so counter to what we're all taught, you know, that you need to train these different systems and that you have to put yourself under stress in order to improve. Um, what's, I mean, <laughs> you know, like how, how can that work? What's, what's the, uh, what's, what is it that people are missing? Or are you just looking at data and saying this, this works and I don't know why you don't need to train this other stuff, but you don't. Well, both I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking my clinical experience, uh, part of which, uh, was a collection of data, uh, for, it's really been for the past 40 years. Um, but it's, you know, it's, uh, I had periods of time where I would just gather a few hundred people and say, okay, we're going to, I'm going to do this, that, and that, and then look at what the outcome is, and you know, let's let's try to get a control group. And um, but it's really, you know, my goal is to help people get healthier and more fit. That's really the the most important thing for me. That's what my I feel my goal has been. And in in practice, people would come to see me, and I would. Um, uh, help them with their training schedules. I'd help them with their diets and whatever was necessary in order to help them get healthier and more fit. And that often meant saying, look, your stress levels are too high. We've measured your cortisol or uh, you've got these signs and symptoms. They're classic stress patterns. Uh, you need to reduce your stress and maybe training 20 hours a week when you have a full-time job and three kids and a big house and a mortgage is too much for you. And and, you know, some people have a hard time with that, but the ones who say, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and reduce some stress, uh, cut my schedule, my training schedule back, um, whatever, uh, and when the outcome is good, 
for me, it's a it's a learning process. For me, I, I you know I I can apply that to the next uh, individual who has the same kind of pattern. So it you know, but there is a scientific basis for this. I have explained it scientifically. I wrote a whole textbook called Complementary Sports Medicine, and so um, uh, there are many reasons scientifically why the process works. Hmm. Okay, so. I, that's really appealing to me. The whole uh, idea that that you, your approach to exercise and to fitness and to running is also is about health, really, um, because as everyone knows, you can you can be really fit, uh, but be doing things that are damaging to your health. And I think running over a certain amount of mileage per week, especially at certain intensities, can become a, a much more doing more harm than good. It uh, could. You know, we we have an epidemic of of athletes who are fit but unhealthy we see it in injuries we see it in fatigue we see it in depression we see it in heart attacks um you know it's not normal uh if you're healthy to have a heart attack or an injury or be tired or have some abnormal sign or symptom um so yeah it's it's a very very important thing and did you say though on the other side that there are elite athletes who who train in this manner without without doing deliberate anaerobic work? Oh sure. Okay. Yeah, w- without a doubt. I mean, we you know, it, it's been it's 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 been time it it's been done so many times by so many athletes. Um, you know, when you when you train for three, four, five, six months only aerobically. And, and I'm thinking of, of uh, Marianne Dickerson, uh, a former athlete I had, I had years ago. Marianne was a silver medalist um, in the world championships. Um, uh, she was a 5'10K runner, um, uh, one of Nike's big athletes for a while. Uh, she's now retired. But um, when I first saw her, she was so broken down everywhere. I mean, her whole, her whole body was, was dismantling. Um, and she said, well, how long am I going to have to train slow? And I said, until you get faster. (laughs) And, and she got more confused and said, okay, uh, you know, I'm willing to do anything because I, I've, I've not succeeded, you know, in these last few years that I've been breaking down. So what happened was she started training about nine minute pace at her max, at her MAF heart rate. And then suddenly she was at 8.40 and then suddenly 8.20 and 8 minutes and 7.45 and 7.30. And that's at the same heart rate. So she just, the same as, she, heart rate. as she's improving Correct. in fitness, her, she Correct. stays at the heart rate but can run faster. Yep. Okay. And, and, and we went six months because that was the clinical decision I made at the time. I said, let's do another month. And, and then at that point I said, let's uh, jump into a 10K. And she said, jump in there with 10K. I haven't done any track work yet. I said, it's okay. Your brain remembers how to race. You, you don't forget that. We can all sprint out of a thunderstorm if we're caught in the middle of one. We can all run after a bus if, if we're going to miss it. Um, our brain has that memory and it never forgets it. Um, so I, it took a bit of talking her into... Uh, doing this race, but she ran, um, I believe it was 3306, mm-hmm. which isn't bad for a woman. And it was a PR by about 45 seconds. And, uh, 
you know, she went on to do to do uh, really well. So um, that's a typical thing. Um, you know, look for your submax pace to get faster, and that tells you you're on the right track. That's that's really really interesting. So so if people are want to really get in, dive in the details, it's called the endurance handbook. Um, the original, or maybe not the original, but the Maffetone method was was your the work that I think you're known for. Yeah, and I should say that the Maffetone method is the name of a book that McGraw Hill um, published. Um, I want to say 15 years ago, and I I don't recommend the book anymore because it's 15 years old. Right. Um, the the newest uh, the newest book, the Endurance Handbook, is kind of a follow up to. It's it stands alone as a book. It's got a lot of really great stuff in it. It's a follow up to the big book of endurance training and racing, which is a big yellow book, which mm-hmm. is sort of the book that has everything and anything you want to know about my approach. Okay, great. So you've mentioned the MAF or the submax heart rate. Um, that when you say that that is one eighty minus your age, is that the formula? It's not. Oh, okay, um, and I often get you know. Uh, uh, some negative responses to whatever it is I do because somebody thinks I say everybody should train at 180 minus their age. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that's that's not true. That's the first part of the formula, and the second part of the formula. And if you go to my website, you could find the formula there. Okay. Um, you choose one of four categories to put yourself into after you've subtracted your age from 180, and each of these categories has you. Subtract another five, keep 180 minus the age the same, or subtract 10, all depending on how healthy and how fit you are. So if you have allergies and asthma, uh, or if you get four or five colds a year, or if your colds last for a month, or um, if you're always injured, uh, if you're on medication, you're going to adjust your heart rate downward because your health is not as good as it should be or your fitness is not as good as it should be. So it's really a way to individualize uh, the process without having to be face-to-face with an athlete. And in fact, in the beginning, what I did was I determined all these things for my athletes, and it it was a long process. It included gait analysis on the track and physical examinations. and, And at some point, I was lecturing... Uh, somewhere and someone and I was talking about this process I would go through to find this maximum uh, aerobic heart rate and somebody said well how can we get that without having to come see you and um, I was a little embarrassed and uh, I started thinking about okay how can we how can I give this guy a formula and so it didn't take long to start fiddling around with numbers and eventually uh, the formula came to to being and I found that it was very, very close or identical to what I could come up with manually in my office. So hmm. it's called the 180 formula and um, uh, it's, it's quite accurate, but 180 minus the age is only the first part okay. of it. Okay. So then what always scares me about these types of programs and, and uh, relying on heart rate is is when someone's saying, okay, train up to this certain heart rate, but do not go over it, um, and then here's how you figure out what that heart rate should be. My concern is always like, what if, what if this formula isn't applying to me, and I'm off by five beats, and I end up tr- doing all this training, but I do it five beats too high, so I'm in out of the aerobic zone. Is that a legitimate 
fear or or is your body going to you know quickly adjust and and that once you've trained within five beats say of that of that number per minute that uh you know your body would would your fitness would improve even if even if you're not training in an ideal zone and pretty soon you would be training in the ideal zone is that kind of the way that to not be so scared of that uh sort of it, it it's okay if you're conservative and the 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 formula has a conservative nature to it because okay. i'd rather have you train a little bit slower than a little bit faster because if you're training a little faster beyond your aerobic maximum level uh it could be a big problem if you're training a little slower you know in a six month time frame or in a three month time frame it's not going to be significantly different but again the important thing is that you're going to be able to test yourself objectively by getting on a track for example uh, and and running three miles and seeing what your time is for each of those miles. And if the, your first mile is a is a nine minute pace, then a month later, you better be running faster than nine minutes, or something is wrong. And yes, it could be the training, and yes, it could be that your heart rate it, that you've picked is too high. And everybody wants a higher heart rate. I I get the most bizarre emails from people saying. You know, I was uh, I was a good track runner in high school. That was 30 years ago. So I added 10 to my 180 minus the eight. You know, no, it doesn't work that way. Um, you know, my mother was a good runner, so I I added 20 to my. You know, um, you know it it requires an honest evaluation, and uh, I tell you, you're 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 going to waste a lot of time if you're not honest with yourself. Right. Okay. So um, yeah, that's all interesting. I think the mile test way of doing things is really nice because when, when i think of this sort of lower intensity training a lot of times the thought is well then i'm not going to be getting any good feedback about how i'm improving if i can't do these all-out test efforts but but testing at that staying at the same heart rate uh running a mile it's a it's a very scientific way to do it much more scientific than doing a time trial or or, or doing a race when you really look at the scientific components of everything um uh and and i think uh uh, again, it's it's you know, are, are you happy with what you're doing now? Are you happy with your health? Are you happy with your performances year after year? Uh, or do you have to take time off from an injury? Are you tired? Do you do you have good performances but you have as many bad? Um, and if you're not happy with where you are, if your body fat's too high, if things are not what you want, then whatever it is you're doing isn't working. Yeah, and I agree with you. And I think, and I think the tendency is to make a small tweak. Then, when in fact, and this applies to a lot of things, not just running, making a, a large change is often the way to to kind of find a whole new, uh, a whole new way to improve. That that kind of people sure. don't realize when they just make minute incremental changes. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think that's that's probably plenty about running and your methods. People can can get the book if they want, and I, I would recommend it. It really is interesting. A lot of different stuff in there uh, from what you're probably used to reading in a running book. Let's pause for a minute to thank our sponsor, Kalo. This episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by Kalo. The Kalo silicone ring is the functional wedding ring for the active lifestyle. Made from hypoallergenic medical-grade silicone, Kalo rings are safe, durable, and comfortable enough for all of life's greatest adventures, in the gym, on the trail, at the job, and everywhere else. Kalo was founded in 2013 by Ted Baker and Casey Holliday, two married guys who got tired of taking off their metal rings every time they wanted to work out, surf, work with their hands, or enjoy the outdoors. Ted and Casey love their wives, as do Doug and I, and wanted to show their commitments all the time, so they came up with a solution to their problem. 
the durable, comfortable silicone rings. The Kalo community is full of elite CrossFitters, NFL quarterbacks, police officers, podcasters, firefighters, triathletes, Olympians, and yes, vegetarian super endurance athletes, who, just like Ted and Casey, place the highest value on their commitments to all of life's greatest adventures. Kalo rings start at only $15.99, so go to Kalo.com, that's Q-A-L-O.com, and use the promo code NOMEAT, all one word, at checkout to get 15% off your purchase. Kalo, we do. Let's talk about diet, because I know, of course, we, we eat differently, and uh, this is the No Meat Athlete podcast, so you're going to be talking to a crowd of vegetarians and vegans here, but uh, can you can let us know, like, what is what is your diet philosophy? I know you're big into uh, the high-fat diet, is that right, and, and sort of ketogenic? No, no, no. Okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm into helping people match their diet to their particular needs. Okay. Uh, period. And I don't, and again, the, the MAF, you know, the Maffetone method is, is not a, a dogma. I don't have a, um, a philosophy that it, it's, it's not like that's a very flexible system, but I want you to make honest evaluations here and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a, a, an interesting story about myself um, regarding that. But just in general, I, I would say that the diet is much more important for our running than training is. Because our diet influences the relationship between fat burning and sugar burning. And think of the body as a, a race car that burns two different fuels and depending on the race we're in, depending on what we're doing, we want to burn certain fuels more than others. And the human body burns fat and it burns sugar. Mm -hmm. And sugar is our short-term fuel. We use it in sprinting. We use it for, you know, a quarter mile, uh, 400-meter, 800-meter race. Um, But as we get to the mile and beyond, fat plays a huge role in giving us energy because fat is unlimited, almost unlimited in, in, its, uh, in the amount of energy that it gives us. The leanest of us has enough fat stored to, to take us hundreds and hundreds of miles. And, and what, what's important about fat is that it's those aerobic muscle fibers, that aerobic system that we just talked about, that, that relies on fat for energy. Mm-hmm. So when you go from nine-minute pace to eight-minute pace over a period of a couple of months or whatever, it's because your aerobic muscle fibers are able to burn more fat for energy. And really, the more fat we have available to us, the farther and faster we can go. Okay. So, so that's a that's a, a, a an important thing. Here's a here's a yeah we we eat differently. I um uh my, my, let, let's get right down to the the four letter word, uh, <laughs> meat. Uh, we, we have really created a horrific problem in our society in the production of animal products, um, just across the board. I mean, everything from the products that are in cars and, uh, other materials we use every day to, uh, the food we eat and 90 90 for me 95 percent of the animal foods out there um are are things that i would not eat they're Mm -hmm. inhumanely treated they're full of chemicals uh they're they're corn fed so the fat profile is really unhealthy um and on and on and you could 
you know, you, I mean, we can talk about that um, for the next hour, which we don't have. <laughs> but um, um, many, many years ago, um, I was, you know, I spent the first 18 years of my life being a sugar junkie. I was a sugar addict. Uh, all I ate was junk food. Uh, from the, the the minute I was born, I was given junk food. And uh, somewhere in my uh, 18th year, I said, wait a minute, this is just not right. And I started on the road to uh, finding a, a better way of eating healthy food. I planted a garden. I, you know, a few years after that, I, um, I was much better, I was much healthier, but I still wasn't right. Uh, I became vegetarian. Um, I did eat eggs. I ate, um, started just eating two, three eggs, and I worked my way up to 10 or 12 eggs because I just, I started craving them as I did away with all the meat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I added cheese, hard to get good cheese. Um, uh, and then after a few more years, I, I just, you know, now I was running a lot. I had run marathons and, and longer races and started eating um, fish once a week. And that made me feel good and uh, another year or so went by and i'm talking about you know seven years or so um at this point i started getting a craving for duck huh. you know how do you get cravings for duck i, mean, <laughs> I don't know but i got cravings for duck, and they, they were so intense and wow. by now i was really into you know reading the body um your brain is telling you things pay attention you know but how do you how do you translate this stuff? Cravings for duck? Come on, I'm a vegetarian. Uh, although now I was eating fish a little bit. Um, and I had duck one day, and it was uh, just an amazing experience. I just felt so much better, and I started having duck once a week. And another year went by, and I had the same craving for beef. And it took a while because it, it I hadn't looked for beef uh, for a while, I hadn't looked for healthy beef, what I would call healthy beef. So uh, to make a long story short, I became a meat-eating vegetarian. I ate a lot of vegetables. Uh, I ate some meat, but it, it was always healthy stuff. And I know, you know, when we have these discussions, some, sometimes people say, well, y- you can't treat an animal humanely if you kill it. Well, what about that carrot you pull out of the ground? You know, carrots have a sensory system very different than than our sensory system, but they still have a sensory system. Plants have, you know, they have a consciousness. So, uh, and and I don't want to drift into that, but I think <laughs> I think the bottom line is that um, meat can provide people with a lot of nutritional things. Uh, animal products in general can provide us with things that we cannot get very easily. For example, vitamin A. Where are we going to get vitamin A if we're not eating animal products? And most people say, well, vegetables and fruits. There's no vitamin A in vegetables and fruits. Um, You can get some in eggs, and if you eat enough eggs, and I'm talking about 10 or 15 a day, you you may get enough vitamin A from that. Um, What chickens do is they eat plants, They eat bugs, too, which has vitamin A, but they eat plants, and those plants contain the carotenoids. Beta-carotene is the one we're most familiar with, but there's a whole line of carotenoids. 
and they are the chickens are able to convert those into vitamin A, and and it gets up gets into the yolk, and that's a good source of vitamin A for us. Humans have a very hard time converting the carotenoids, especially beta carotene, to vitamin A. So even though plants have a lot of beta carotene, we don't get a lot of vitamin A, and that could be a problem. Same with EPA from fish oil. Um, we we don't convert the omega-3 fats in flax very well to EPA. Um, and, you know, humans evolved, uh, you know, at the ocean's edge and, and uh, ate fish for probably millions of years. And so we've got a system, a mechanism in our body that requires EPA, namely the brain, among other things. So anyway, that's my take on... Um, on that part of the diet, I think people need to look at uh, meeting their needs. And if they can meet their needs uh, by eating eggs, um, uh, then great. Can they meet their needs without eggs? I've not seen that. I had a lot of vegetarians and then later on vegans in my practice. And, um, and it was very difficult. Very, very difficult. Okay. I mean, I... I can appreciate the point of view. Um, I, I don't. I don't intend to start an argument at all. But I mean, I think. I think. Of course, most people listening here are, are going to disagree with a lot of that. Um, and I hope they don't dislike my training advice. No, that, and that's what I hope too. I hope that too, because I mean, I think we can we can disagree on this entire diet thing, uh, but but separate that from the training. I hope, and and people can uh, appreciate that still. So, well, I think the, the 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 more important issue, which I think you'll agree with, is that people have to stop eating junk food. Yeah, and that's that's where we that's what we have in common. That you that in your book, I mean, you said you said there's real food and there's junk food, and you've got to eat the real food. And then, so within that real food, which ones do we need? Which ones do we you know can can we get from plant sources? Or, or what what components of real food can we get from plant sources? I think you know you're going to agree disagree there with many listeners and many um, of, of the, the vegan doctors, as they're called, who, who our listeners often pay attention to. But uh, I don't know. I, I think, but I, I'm curious about one, one thing you said, that w- with the connection between diet and what source of fuel we use when we're um, you know, in, in an aerobic state or just tr- doing an endurance sport, um, can you elaborate on that? Like, what, what is the connection there between obviously there's a connection between the the intensity that you're moving and what source of fuel your body's going to use and and the amount of time you've trained uh at that so that your body can become better at burning fat but what is the connection between diet and and what source of fuel you're burning well the diet will uh the, the diet could influence the fuel via the hormonal changes we get when we consume food uh and and there's a there's a number of those the one that's commonly discussed is insulin if we produce insulin uh, before our workout, for example, uh, if we if we you know have a, a glass of Gatorade before a workout, we can literally shut down, tune down, way down our aerobic capabilities. So now we don't burn as much fat, and we're forced to burn sugar. And now we go out for what we think is an aerobic run, wanting to train our aerobic system, but we really can't do it because. We're not burning fat. We don't have the fuel. And when you measure uh, fat burning and sugar burning on a treadmill in a laboratory, um, you can see that you you could you can just see what a person has had for breakfast based on that. 
And so you have to, you know, that's got to be part of your protocol. Uh, what did you have for breakfast? Or even beforehand, don't eat this, that, and that for breakfast because we want to measure you in a in a fasted state and see whether you can burn fat or not. We know if you drink the Gatorade or have a, a bagel, you're going to reduce your fat burning. Um, that's, that's pretty well known. So um, uh, we spent all this time figuring out a train ride. Part of that is building the aerobic system, but it only will take one meal or snack or one small glass of uh, uh, junk food liquid to shut down that aerobic system, and that's something we want to avoid. Okay, great. So uh, I, we're we're about at the amount of time that I wanted us to take. Um, I do want to encourage people to check out the endurance handbook. There's a lot more that we didn't go into. I mean, of course, there's there's stuff about the training and the diet, and that's a lot of it. But there's also a um, long section about shoes and sort of a argument for not barefoot running, but but uh, for the the. I don't know. What would you say? Like, a, I think barefoot the, the, therapy, you called it. The benefits of being the benefits of being barefoot, which are tremendous. And we, we should be, you know, I, I, I think running barefoot is fine. But um, <clears throat> what I encourage people to do is spend more time barefoot so the muscles on the feet can work optimally so that when you do put shoes on, your your feet are still working pretty good. Right. And then there's uh, more about the brain and neuromuscular things, something about muscle testing, lots of interesting alternative, but but definitely interesting and and worthwhile things. So uh, the book is The Endurance Handbook. Um, Dr. Phil Maftone, thank you for joining us. Thank you, man. All right. Talk to you soon. Take care.